Hello and welcome to episode 27 of the JS Bach Files. I'm Terence O'Grady and today we're going to talk about Bach's famous Goldberg Variations, arguably the most elaborate and impressive set of variations composed in the Baroque era. First, a little background for the piece. Bach's early biographer, Johann Nikolaus Forkel, relates a story to the effect that Bach created this work for a former student, Johann Gottlieb Goldberg, who had been assigned the task of whiling away the late night hours for an insomniac nobleman by the name of Hermann Karl von Karzelink in Dresden. There are some difficulties with this tale, among them, as Christoph Wolf points out, the age of young Goldberg when the variations were published. He would have been only 14 years old at that time, and these variations would have been a formidable challenge for any keyboard player, especially a relatively inexperienced young man. It's not impossible, of course, and it's also true that the piece may have at some later point been used in the way that Forkel describes. At any rate, the Goldberg Variations were published in 1741, an unusual event in itself considering that Bach, unlike Telemann, for example, made no effort to publish the vast majority of his works. The work was titled An Aria with Diverse Variations for the Harpsichord with Two Manuals and included in the last volume of a four-part collection titled Klavier Übung, usually translated as Keyboard Practice and labeled Opus 1. This project was published in four parts between 1731 and 1741 and also contains some other very important and well-known works for keyboard, such as the Partitas in Volume 1, the Italian Concerto and French Overture in Volume 2, and some of his most significant works for organ in Volume 3. The entire collection was, as Wolf puts it, a systematic and complete survey of the art of keyboard music as seen from Bach's perspective. Publishing this series of works in this form may have been inspired by Telemann's published series of works under the translated title of The True or Faithful Music Master, one of which we looked at in the last episode. Although Telemann's published collection features a variety of instrumental genres and Bach focuses on work for keyboard. Let's move on to the variations themselves, which it is often assumed were inspired by Handel's Chaconne with 62 variations, HWV 442, a work dating from 1703 through 1706, but not published until 1732, and which uses the same eight-measure bass line which Bach employs at the beginning of his variations. But of course, that bass line provides only the starting point for Bach. He expands it in his version of the Chaconne and follows the first 16-measure section with an additional 16-measure section based on a variant of the bass part. And of course, the aria melody itself, which appears in Maria Magdalena Bach's 1725 notebook but may have been copied in much later, is now generally thought to be completely of Bach's invention. We'll take a fairly quick look at the aria, a sarabande whose captivating melody ingeniously distracts from the bass and thereby from the pure structural backbone of the entire cycle, as Wolf puts it, since the variations which follow are based not on the aria per se, but the bass line beneath it and its harmonic implications, as expressed in the opening aria. So let's start with the bass line beneath the aria. Here is a simplified, somewhat abstracted version of the Chaconne bass line alone for the first 16-measure section provided by harpsichordist and musicologist Ralph Kirkpatrick in his performing edition of the work. Kirkpatrick also designates in his example the harmonic implications associated with each note, but we'll say more about that later. For now, we're going to focus on the bass pattern itself, which I think will be very useful in demonstrating how Bach manages both unity and variety over the course of 30 variations of a 32-measure aria. That's the pattern for the first section of the aria, 16 notes in all divided into two parts of eight notes each. The pattern begins, as in any number of chicanes, by starting on the tonic, in this case G, and descending by step. 
After four notes, the pattern then skips down a third before working its way back up the scale, landing now on D before dropping a fifth to the lower tonic note. The pattern for the second eight notes is a bit different. It starts on a G again and begins to move down by step for the first three notes, just as in the first part. But then it jumps up a fourth, after which it skips down a third, then moves up by step twice before concluding with a descending leap of a fifth to end on D, presumably to allow for a cadence on the dominant at the end of the first 16-bar section. But although there are differences between the pattern used in the second part of the section, the second eight measures, and the pattern used in the first eight measures, there are also similarities. Notes 12 through 16 echo the pattern heard in notes 5 through 8, and notes 9 through 12 could be thought of as an inversion of both patterns. Okay, now let's hear a performance of the first section of the aria. It's a lovely, sensitive, somehow fragile melody, despite the presence of some assertive rhythms which we encounter as the melody unfolds. But before saying any more about the melody, I want to again focus on the bass line. Bach's actual bass line does not, of course, completely match up with Kirkpatrick's abstracted and simplified version. It largely replicates Kirkpatrick's version for the first four bars, but then adds a descending passing note on a weak beat to connect the notes a third apart. Then, in bar 7, the D, the dominant note, is preceded first by its upper neighbor tone and then its lower. As we proceed on to the final eight bars of the first section, Bach positions most of the notes heard in the Kirkpatrick example very prominently on the first beat of each measure, but sometimes he fills in the gaps between that note on the first beat of the measure and the note on the first beat of the next measure with added notes, usually passing tones moving by step. The exception is in measure 10. Following Kirkpatrick's simplified pattern, it should start with an F-sharp, down a half-step from the tonic G above. But Bach cleverly suspends the G and the previous measure into this second measure, creating the opportunity for an interesting accented dissonance. The suspended G does resolve down to the F-sharp on B2 of the measure, but even then it quickly dances away from the F-sharp, and Bach adds more extra notes before passing on to the next official note in the pattern in the next measure. I realize that without a score to follow, this is hard to envision, and I know it may seem as if I'm introducing unnecessary detail by dwelling on the bass line like this. But of course, the variations to come are all about the bass line and its harmonic implications, and I want to show how Bach's bass line is, even in this opening aria, more complex than the Kirkpatrick example I played, even though it does follow the general outline of that example. Now, how about the aria melody itself? Bach obviously enriches the aria melody with a number of ornaments, mostly trills, mordants, and mordants starting with a prefix note from above. If you look at the score, you'll also notice a great number of notes that seem to be written as grace notes but it was the convention of the period to notate accented dissonances as grace notes, so those particular notes really have to be heard as part of the structural line. That doesn't mean, however, that all performers approach them in the same way. There's a general consensus for this period that the note written as what appears to be a grace note is played on the beat and displaces the note that appears to be written on the beat. But for how long? There's less agreement on that. I'm just scratching the surface here in terms of the nuances involved in interpreting how these so-called grace notes should be played, but you can see why two performers might play the same passage with very different results. 
and performances of this aria tend to be fluid anyway, so you can expect to hear some pretty significant differences between performances, regardless of whether they're played on harpsichord or piano. About the melody itself and the inner parts which Bach inserts between the melody and the bass line, I'm going to say relatively little. Obviously, the thematic idea presented in the first two bars is revisited a number of times. Bars 3 and 4, for example, are basically a more ornamented version of the first two bars down an octave. But although the initial two-bar idea is reintroduced in various forms several times in the course of the 16-measure first section, Bach nevertheless introduces some interesting new ideas along the way, including some 32nd to 16th note short long rhythms. Let's turn now to the second section of the aria. It's also 16 bars in length, and the bass line, again using Kirkpatrick's abstraction, reveals some similarities with that of the first section. For example, the pattern of notes 5 through 8 in the second section replicates the pattern found in notes 5 through 8 and 13 through 16 in the first section, albeit starting on different pitches. And the pattern found in notes 9 through 12 in the second section is the same as the pattern occurring in notes 9 through 12 of the first. Here first is a simplified version of the Chaconne pattern for the second section of the aria. And now here is an actual performance of the second section of the aria. Although we're now beginning on a dominant chord, the opening measures of this second section obviously draws on thematic ideas similar to the first, although the harmonic context evolves differently. The same or close to the same rhythmic ideas are initially present, the ornamentation is even more pervasive in places, and the same sort of accented dissonances occur. But after the tenth measure, a new idea is introduced one that unfolds in a consistent flow of sixteenth notes and in which the same new motives recur on different pitch levels. But we end in much the same way as the first section ended, with a languid dissonant seventh displacing the final chord of the section, in this case the tonic chord that concludes the aria. By the way, the Chaconne pattern, the simplified version taken from Kirkpatrick, does not always match up with the bass line here. It does initially, the first four notes of the pattern are found prominently displayed on beat one of the first four bars. But starting in bar five, the situation is a little different. The notes suggested in Kirkpatrick's simplified pattern are present in the texture, they're part of the harmony being expressed, but are not necessarily found in the bass line on the downbeat of the measure as was the case earlier. In the final eight bars of the aria, however, the notes in this simplified pattern are once again heard prominently in the bass line on the first beat of each measure. Okay, on to the variations. I'm certainly not going to comment on all of them, but enough I hope to give you a sense of the scope and variety of this most famous example of Baroque variation technique. Please keep in mind that the structure of the Goldberg variations, particularly in regard to the arrangement of the variations to come, has been seen by many commentators as rife with various metaphysical or philosophical implications. That may or may not be the case, but the focus in this episode will be on how the variations, or at least the ones I'm going to focus on, are likely to be experienced musically. We'll look first at the first variation. The first of its two sections is well integrated melodically, 
with one particular thematic idea popping up on a regular basis. As you heard, its most rhythmically distinctive gesture occurs immediately. The tonic G is decorated by a lower neighbor tone, both in 16th notes, before it returns to an 8th note G. That G is elongated slightly by its tie into a 16th note, and then the melody drops a 4th, only to hurry up the scale arriving on D on the downbeat of the next bar. There the pattern is repeated with a slight variant, leading to a partial repetition of the same pattern on the G above, an octave higher than we started. Although the right-hand pattern has broken off by measure 4, you could hear a little of that in my example, it is by no means finished with that quick little lower neighbor tone figure with which the melody started. In three of the next four bars, that figure is re-employed, now shifted to the weak part of beat 1, the and of 1 as it were, and linked to a new descending arpeggio, all of it ascending by step sequentially. The left-hand bass line also focuses on the opening quick little lower neighbor tone figure with which the right-hand melody began, quoting it seven times in the first eight measures, either as an echo or a pre-echo to the right-hand melody when, in bar five, the right-hand and left-hand basically switch parts, or at least patterns. In the first four bars, the lower neighbor tone figure appears on the second half of the first beat, echoing the right-hand. In the next three of four measures, it shifts to the downbeat, thereby anticipating the right hand. Here's just the left hand for the first eight measures. Although the ear is probably more clearly drawn to the patterns I just referred to, it's not as if Bach has abandoned the chaconne pattern in the bass. Far from it. That chaconne pattern is most certainly and obviously present, occupying the initial downbeat of every measure, but integrated into recurring left-hand patterns in such a way that you might not notice it at first. Now, here's a performance of the entire 16-measure first section of Variation 1 without repeat. You may have noticed that the second half of the section, the last eight bars, eliminates the quick little neighbor tone figure completely, replacing it with a series of sixteenth note, widely spaced but somewhat generic arpeggio figures, which puts the emphasis back on the chaconne bass and its accompanying harmonic pattern. I'm going to spend less time with the second section of the first variation. The repeated pattern employing those lower neighbor tones makes its appearance again in the left hand and the opening rhythmic figure associated with that original idea, the 2 16th going to a tight 8th note, also plays an important role for the right hand, although that rhythmic figure is now tied to an ascending scale fragment instead of the lower neighbor figure with which it was originally associated. Starting in the fifth measure, we do encounter some new rhythmic ideas. Dotted 8 16th patterns are introduced in the left hand, and the original 2 16th H rhythm is now given some clever syncopated twists with the first note omitted or tied into. This leads to some very interesting interlocking patterns between the right hand and left hand, although I'll admit they go by very quickly. The last eight bars of the second section resemble the final bars of the first section. Fast moving, sequentially repeated 16th note passages in the right hand against slower moving, mostly triadic eighth notes in the left hand although the right hand and left hand parts are switched around at one point. In regard to the chaconne pattern, the situation is somewhat analogous to the second section of the aria. The notes from Kirkpatrick's simplified chaconne pattern are prominently displayed throughout most of the second section, but there are measures where those notes are present but not in the bass line. Here's the second section of Variation 1 without repeat. 
pass now to variation three in 12-8 time, a canon at the unison, where one voice chases another at the same pitch level. The theme begins with a sustained note which breaks into a flow of sixteenths, an idea which is then repeated a step lower. The imitation begins in the second measure, in the alto voice, as the lead voice continues on top and the bass begins its accompaniment with a series of eighth note arpeggios. Once the three lines are established, and particularly after the bass line increases its level of activity to sixteenth notes, mostly scale-wise and often in contrary motion to the voices above, the level of activity increases significantly, with a great number of non-harmonic tones flashing through the harmonic texture. The chaconne bass notes are present and obvious for the first few measures, notably the descending scale pattern of the first four notes, but thereafter they are woven into complex lines and may often be missed. The harmonic implications of the chaconne line, as expressed in the opening aria, are pretty much intact, however, even though new chords have also been sprinkled into the texture. Here's the first section of Variation 3 without repeat. The melody which begins the second section is related to the first, but starts on the second beat and becomes busier, faster. The imitation at the unison again comes in a measure later. The bass line in which the chaconne pattern is embedded is again a busy one and overall the details are hard to keep up with, particularly at a first hearing, despite the amount of repetition of thematic material at the unison. And of course, this is merely a canon at the unison and therefore reasonably easy to hear. There are more difficult canons to come. Every third variation is a canon of some sort, each one at a progressively more distant interval. So it's clear that Bach was committed to them as a fundamental technique of variation. Here's the second section of Variation 3. Now we're going to look very briefly at variations 4 and 5, because the texture is much simpler and the chaconne bass pattern much easier to follow. The more sparsely textured variation 4 in 3A time has been described variously as rustic and courtly, with the head motive in the top part for the first three bars providing most of the material for the entire variation, frequently also popping up in the alto and tenor voices, and sometimes even in the bass although for the most part the chaconne pattern is presented plainly and little adorned, at least in the first section. The second 16-bar section employs mostly variants of the opening motive but adds a descending line of sixteenth notes into the mix. As in the first section, the chaconne bass line is quoted directly for several measures, and where it is not, the harmonies heard in the original aria are generally followed. Variation 5, written for two keyboards and requiring some tricky hand crossing, is much busier, its main melodic idea consisting of a running flow of mostly scale-wise sixteenth notes, which breaks, after four bars, into a figuration pattern harboring a strong descending line. The sixteenths soon pass to the left hand, but the chaconne bass remains reasonably obvious. The second section is, as in all of the variations, based on a different harmonic progression generated by the differing bass lines, but continues to use some of the same ideas even as it introduces some distinctive new ideas in the right hand. We'll hear just the first sixteen-bar section. Thank you. 
Variation 6 in 3-8 is a canon at the interval of a second. The middle voice begins it with a sustained tone, followed by a descending scale in sixteenths, a pattern continued throughout the first section. It's imitated a measure later by the top voice, creating the first in a series of suspended dissonances, fairly gentle ones at that, which provide the special personality for this variation. The chaconne pattern is much less obviously in evidence here, although its harmonic implications are respected if enriched chromatically. Here is the first section only. Variation 7 is in 6-8 for two keyboards and indicated as in the tempo of a gigue. As such, it has a rather distinctive personality, its melody demonstrating typical gigue-like characteristics in its use of dotted rhythmic patterns and fondness for large leaps. There's no strict imitation here, but the left hand does eventually provide a late-arriving echo of the right hand's leading motive. Rapid 30-second note runs are introduced as upbeats to the characteristic dotted 8th, 16th, 8th note figures as we move through the first section, and these play an even larger role in the second section. Here is the first section only. Variation 8 is a dazzling, toccata-like piece in 3-4 for two keyboards, in which the chacun pattern is heard very clearly on the downbeats in the first section, a little less so in the second. But we're going to move on to Variation 9. It's another canon, the middle voice entering in the second bar a third lower. The bass line is almost as rhythmically active as the canonic voices, and introduces one of the most important motives of the variation, an eighth note tied into and followed by a pair of sixteenths, different versions of which permeate much of the first section. It's another example of how Bach makes difficult technical accomplishments, such as a canon of this type, seem almost effortless, and the result is a variation of equal parts beauty and serenity. Although the second section introduces some new rhythmic subtleties into the flow, we're going to hear only the first. Variation 10, in common time, is a fugetta, the only one of its type in this collection. It has something of an archaic feel about it, presenting the subject in the bass which, once again, respects the original harmonic context associated with the chaconne, if not always with the chaconne pattern itself. The tenor enters after four bars at the fifth in conventional fugal fashion, with the soprano coming in at the octave four bars later. When the alto takes its turn, it does so a second higher, coming in on A rather than G, and changes its intervallic content somewhat, respecting the harmonic context enforced by the chaconne pattern. As usual, the second section begins on the dominant, where the first left off, and reintroduces the subject. But although this version of the subject certainly resembles the original, it begins on the third of the chord rather than the root, and this new harmonic context gives it a very different spin and enforces some interesting chromatic alterations in the process. We'll hear just the first section. Variation 11 
Variation 11 is in 12-16 time and 4-2 manuals. Pianist Angela Hewitt, known for her stellar performances of Bach, as well as her always insightful program notes, has aptly described Variation 11 as a gentle, jig-like toccata. But we're going to move on to Variation 12. It's a canon with the following voice in the middle of the texture entering in contrary motion. Here's the rhythmically distinctive beginning of the theme, moving by step up a third, back down, and then sweeping up the scale. The following voice comes in the middle, a measure later, a little more difficult to follow because it's heading the other way. But the bass line is simple enough initially, quoting the Chaconne pattern exactly, except for measures 4 and 8, where the bass line becomes more motivically active. The bass becomes more active rhythmically in the second eight bars of the first section. But the Chaconne pattern almost always remains front and center. Here is the first section. Bach starts the second section with the inversion of the original theme in the middle voice, imitated a measure later in the top voice. But the inverted theme heads off in a new direction this time, including a couple of ornamental 30-second note scale-wise flurries along the way, as well as some rather unexpected chromatic motion. Here is the second section. The 13th variation for two keyboards and in 3-4 time, which Hewitt rightfully refers to as sublime and an emotional turning point in the work, begins with a wonderfully florid melody floating gracefully and at times poignantly over the clearly marked Chaconne bass line with a minimally obtrusive middle voice filling in the texture. The melodic ideas in the first bar and variants of them generate most of the movement although they interact with the underlying harmonies in different ways as the movement unfolds. The melody lapses into something of a figuration pattern near the end of the first section, similar to one that also plays a large role in the second section. But there is nothing mechanical about the conclusion of both sections, adorned as they are with a lovely chromatic inflection. We'll hear the first section. Variation 14, another work written for two manuals, is another dazzling touch piece, requiring formidable dexterity to negotiate the frequent crossing of hands. But we're going to pass over it 
and look at variation 15, the first of the variations to be in G minor. It's in 2-4, marked on Dante, and is a canon with the following voice at the fifth in contrary motion. Here is the opening of the theme. Perhaps because of its novel harmonic vocabulary, now available through the use of a minor key, this variation seems charged with emotion, even though its drooping 16th note passages are always balanced with ascending passages in contrary motion. We'll hear just the first section. Variation 16 is in the form of a French overture, which Bach incorporated into a variety of different genres, and this one is fully idiomatic, although without the return to the more ceremonial-sounding double-dotted opening section. It's a grandiose work and appears to function as an introduction to the second half of the variations. The chaconne pattern is on full display in the opening section, but the situation is less clear in the fugal section even though even there the pattern makes its presence felt in some places. Here is the opening section followed by part of the fugal section. Variation 17 is another spirited, toccata-like movement, and Variation 18, another interesting canon, this time at the sixth, with the chaconne pattern referenced initially in the top voice. Variation 19 is a delicate little 3-8 dance, resembling a passapier, with the bass line initially presenting the chaconne pattern simply and directly, but later incorporating it into a sequentially repeated pattern. Variation 20 is another spirited and extremely demanding touch piece for two manuals with a great deal of hand crossing. Here is the first section. Variation 21 is in G minor, in common time, 
and a cannon at the normally difficult interval of a seventh, one which Bach manages to make sound perfectly natural. The opening bass line draws from the chaconne pattern, but in the opening measures turns it into a much more sinuously chromatic affair. Here is the first section. In the second section, and starting as usual on the dominant, the theme is played in inversion, and the somewhat more syncopated bass line is again inflected by descending chromatic half-steps. Here is the second half. Variation 22 is a stately affair in motet style, which exhibits incredible motivic persistence. Its opening four-note motive recurs in virtually every measure, which results in a series of elegant suspensions of various types occurring in every voice and stretching through the entire variation. Here is the first section. Number 23 is another high-spirited, virtuoso variation with scales flying up and down the keyboard, sometimes in sixteenth notes with the two voices moving in thirds or sixths, and sometimes in thirty-second notes with passages featuring niftily interlocking parts in both sections. Here's the first section. Number 24 is a lilting, pastoral-like variation in 6-8, featuring a canon at the octave, where the lead voice switches from the top voice to the middle halfway through the first section. But we're going to skip to variation 25, one of extraordinary beauty, which Hewitt refers to as, without a doubt, the greatest of all the variations. It very much returns to the noble yet emotionally effective spirit of the opening aria, with the right hand floating freely over a simpler, at least rhythmically simpler, left-hand accompaniment. Like the opening aria, it is an expressive sarabande, this time in G minor and with an even greater emphasis on pathos. It's the longest of the variations and displays chromatic complexities far beyond any of the others. Here is the first section.
The five final variations bring five new perspectives on the Chaconne pattern and its harmonic implications. Of course, there are more dazzling touch pieces. A canon at the ninth, a study in written-out trills in the middle voice, at times more than one, against which leaping patterns are heard above and below, those below naturally drawing from the Chaconne pattern. Variation 29 is all about 16th note chords and then three-note fragments tossed vigorously back and forth between the hands. Here is the first section. The final variation, number 30, occupies a world unto itself as a good-natured quodlibet, traditionally a combination of well-known popular or traditional melodies meant to be humorous. Here's a brief example. There are at least two well-known folk songs in this quodlibet, and probably more that are hinted at. Bach, of course, is sometimes thought of as an intellectual automaton who is driven to compose complex and demanding music. One, that is, he is not being characterized as a difficult and even positively quarrelsome individual who insisted on continuing musical traditions that were, even in his day, fast becoming obsolete. There may be some truth in both characterizations, but we know from some of the music we've already glimpsed, think for example about some of his secular cantatas, that Bach was by no means a joyless individual and would certainly have appreciated the pleasure involved in encountering a humorous final variation after a series of exhaustively inventive exercises summing up all the possibilities of contrapuntally based variation technique all based on a single Chaconne pattern. Since the opening aria is to be repeated at the conclusion of the variations, we'll hear part of it again to complete the experience. That's all for this episode. Our next will involve a look at some of Bach's early works for organ. <laughs>